0: It's music by one of my favorite composers, Conlon Nankaro, that is the prelude from his studies for player piano. He wrote most of his music for player piano, which is interesting because at that time he was not the only composer fascinated by this idea of writing music that was too complex for humans to play, uh, but he was one of the few who decided not to go down the electronic music route and to instead work in a more mechanical fashion and work with player pianos. In fact, he spent most of his life living in a small town, uh, relatively unknown, tinkering with these piano rolls. He was fascinated by jazz and boogie woogie, as we can definitely hear in that piece. He was also fascinated by canons and the music of Bach and really weird ratios and and all kinds of wonderfully complex uh, interrelationships between different themes, as again, we hear in that piece. But there's also an emotionality to the music of Nan that I think is fascinating. He was definitely a man of convictions. As a young man, he went off to fight against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, When he returned, he, like so many others, had trouble renewing his US passport. Uh, So he spent a little bit of time in New York uh, where he kind of stocked up on music books and and the things he thought he might need. And then when it became clear he wasn't going to get a passport, he decamped to Mexico. So when I said he spent most of his life living in a small town, well, that town was in Mexico because he felt he had no choice but to leave the United States. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead. My theme for the show today is expats. And of course, like all themes, this is just an excuse for me to play some great music, uh, some music you probably haven't heard before. Maybe you've heard the non He's He's justifiably famous, um, well, famous with air quotes, as we say about composers in the contemporary classical music world. But if you don't know him, check him out on Spotify. Uh, it's well worth a deep dive on relevant tones at some point. But on the program today, I'm gonna to talk with four composers who were American born, who left the country for various and sundry reasons, and have not looked back since. Uh, of course, uh, my original idea, not surprising, was a little bit more political. I was thinking, gee, it's it's such an incredible disaster here in the country between the mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic, the the social justice cries that are that are so needed but so distorted by the current administration and propagandistic news outlets, etc. All, all of the things that are making this country difficult for people and are making many of us, especially of an artistic temperament, uh, think about leaving. But of course, when I started talking with with the composers, I mean, uh, it changes, right? These are human beings. There's a variety of reasons that people leave the country. Many of them left decades ago. And so uh, it's not so much about that. It's going to be more about their music. Each of these composers deserves an entire Relevant Tones episode at least, Uh, but uh, for this one at least, we'll just kind of get, get a little sample of each composer's music and hear from them what life is like where they're living now. Let's start with Jane O'Leary, a composer who has been living in Ireland for quite some time. I met Jane in 2007 uh, when we commissioned her, my company Access Contemporary Music, commissioned her to write a piece for our composer alive project and she wrote a wonderful piece called sun showers uh, which is this weather phenomenon in ireland where it rains but the sun is still shining uh, at the the same time so i started our conversation by getting a basic biographical fact wrong
1: and you're from the midwest in uh, the united states originally is that right
2: no i'm from hartford connecticut
1: oh okay Because I know your sister wound up in the Midwest, so I I was thinking that that's where you were Oh, of course,
2: (laughs) of course. My sister's in Springfield, Illinois, which gave me a nice excuse to visit when I was invited to Chicago a few times, which was fantastic. But um, no, I'm a New Englander, Seth, Um, Connecticut Yankee, (laughs) (laughs) and went to Vassar on the Hudson there. And... Princeton for PhD which I finished after I moved to Ireland and married a, an Irishman that I met in Princeton and we came came back in the early 70s I was only starting on my path as a composer um had no idea how it would go or where I'd end up with it I was also a pianist that was my first love And gradually, the two came together around the whole area of contemporary music. And that's where I've been on the path for a good while now.
1: So how did you find the the contemporary music scene when you first arrived? Was it it kind of you helped to create it or or was there something going on already? (laughs) That's a good question,
2: Seth. I've been thinking about it um, today before coming to talk to you and uh, trying to remember how bleak it was and how non-existent it was (laughs) it's a totally different world today it's just it's wonderful actually (laughs) but i tell you when i moved i i didn't know much about ireland but i said okay um you know i'll see what i can do and i figured you either go somewhere where there isn't anything really and you make it happen, or you stay safe and everything is all set up already. So I thought it would be exciting to try and create things. And that's what I ended up doing. I guess you could say when I moved here, there was a handful of composers. I'd say a dozen, you know, 20 maybe. Um, They were all men. There were no women. There were some in the past who were amazing and never had their works performed, but they wrote, you know, people like Ina Boyle, who lived like, I don't know, on her own in in Wicklow and she just kept writing and she was really talented, but her stuff never got played. So it was tough and I just, it was kind of oblivious and kept kept going, (laughs) forging ahead. Um, And suddenly uh, realized about twenty years later that <laughs> that I was on my own, you know. But uh, wonderful now, I'd say at least a third, maybe nearly close to half of the active composers are women, and it's been really, for me, very um, rewarding and um, just I've I've enjoyed their company, and I'm so glad that I that I have other women composers now that I can, can relate to and chat to and, you know, it's important. That's a different world.
1: You know, one thing about Ireland that's always fascinated me is, you know, it's true that there's fewer resources in terms of ensembles and things of that nature, but there's more resources in terms, or at least there has been in the past, hopefully still are, like the CMC was, was, uh, Pretty great about about recording people's music, about getting your music out on uh, on CD, on, on albums. Um, you know, our yeah. R- RTE lyric has, has gone back and forth, but you know, but there was a time when <laughs> yeah. they were playing a lot of Irish composers, uh, which, which has never really been the case here. That I, I mean, not since the '40s, you know, not since Samuel Barber or somebody. You know, um, so I, I'm just curious, like, do you you know, as you look back on your career, I mean, do you feel like being in Ireland has been a really good thing for you as a composer?
2: I do i do i as i as I said a minute ago i have i have kind of found my voice here, and I think i've had i've taken my time and just kind of kept at it, and that's that's how I work best with everything i I don't jump immediately, but I just kind of keep going consistently and um I feel like I've got to a wonderful point at this stage in my life I'm so grateful for everything I've had here in Ireland. And as you say, yeah, it's it's all these little things that add up, occasional broadcasts on the radio, occasional concerts, uh, meeting people who are interested in, in hearing what you're doing, all of these little things. It's, it's no big thing, it's no one enormous thing, but each thing leads to the next thing and every, everyone you meet along the way is a, is a step forward. Um, but yeah, Ireland has been fantastic.
0: A little bit of my conversation with my friend, Jane O'Leary. Let's hear some music. We're gonna hear two movements performed live from her piece, A Winter Sketchbook. Uh, this is movement one and movement three. Here to perform, Madeline Staunton, Alto Flute, and Elaine Clark violin. It's a live performance, but I feel like you can hear a pin drop in that room. I imagine the audience all just kind of tensely listening on the edge of their seat. It's beautiful music by Jane O'Leary from Winter Sketchbook. We heard Movement 1 and Movement 3 with Madeline Staunton on alto flute and Elaine Clark on violin. Like I said, she has a great ear for color. It's amazing what she can do with just two instruments. It's easy to think that there might be electronics in there, but there aren't. The piece that she wrote for ACM, Sun Showers, is up on the ACM website, acmusic.org. Really, really also a very evocative piece. She always finds a new way to use the instruments that she's writing for. I'm featuring music of expats on the program today. Jane O'Leary has been in Ireland for several decades, originally from Hartford, Connecticut. Let's move now to a California native who has been living in the Netherlands, Ned McGowan.
3: I was uh, doing my masters in San Francisco, San Francisco Conservatory in classical flute. And uh, I was starting to really get into new music. And uh, at the same time, I was like gigging my butt off in San Francisco, playing weddings and parties and, you know, getting drunk at parties, playing Pachelbel Cannon and, and, All this classical hits and boy that was that fun for about a year but you know when you start doing that three or four times a week and you just don't want to like practice or listen to music outside of that so i I really felt like i was dying a sort of gig death in san francisco and at the same time i was getting more into contemporary music i started composing a little bit and i was gonna go study with robert dick the famous american flute player uh, he was living in Switzerland at the time. He said, Ned, I'd love to teach you, but don't come to Switzerland because it's a dead scene for the rest. You know, you won't do anything. So he said, why don't you go to Amsterdam? There's a great teacher, Anne Leberge. So uh, so I picked up and went. And, uh, uh, and I came for one or two years, you know, just to have some lessons and get a little bit of a, european experience um but and i started uh um uh I, I i met someone who started teaching me carnatic music some carnatic music theory from south india and uh and that was really cool it was really cool because it was helping me dealing with how to grapple with non-western music what do you do with theory what do you do with techniques how do you incorporate it into your voice? You know, started me kind of uh, asking those questions. And, um, and after a few years, I was just starting to scratch the surface with that. So I, I thought, okay, well, uh, I have no money and uh, no, almost no work and stuff, but uh, it's cheap here to live. And I really love what I'm learning. So uh, I'm gonna stay really that was the choice and I I felt like dang if I go to New York I'm gonna be working two jobs just to pay the rent and I don't know I just felt like uh it was gonna sink me I'm sure I would have figured it out but uh but coming to Amsterdam was a really good place for me to just kind of read lots of books and go to concerts and start teaching myself and start saying, okay, I want to learn this. I want to learn this. I'm going to do this. And uh, after eight years was the moment of decision. And maybe this is a sort of interesting expat question is like, okay, well, are you going to, you know, should I stay or should I go? Right. And most people go back, you know, they come for a few years and they don't like the weather or they don't like the um, language or something. And then they, they go home. And uh, for me, it was all about the music, and I felt like that that was, uh, that was happening, and that was what I wanted to do. and uh, so I stayed and, uh, and decided to stay and And then everything grow, you know everything kept growing. and then I went and got a degree in composition in The Hague, and uh, uh, and I won some composition prize, and that sort of gave me access to the funding public funding here. And so then I could start working as a composer.
0: A little bit of my conversation with composer and flutist Ned McGowan. Uh, We went on to talk about, or more about, this idea of the government in Holland supporting artists and composers, especially now during COVID, which I think is very, very important. And uh, it is a fascinating dichotomy, I think. um, I I personally, living in the United States, am not so opposed to the fundraising model. I I think the, the hard part about it is that for a creative person, it, it can be difficult to go into fundraising mode to find the money for your project, and then to put all of that aside and and, and to find the inner quietude that you need to actually do the project. Uh, for me personally, doing a lot of different things, and then it's like, now it's time to compose. <laughs> and you know, Your heart rate is up and you have to just kind of put all of that aside and, and go into your quiet place uh, to, to find. The, 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 your creative uh, energy that you need, and I think that's one of the advantages of this system where, where the government um, helps to support the arts, where they say that this is an important part of a society that hopefully composers don't ever have to leave that kind of meditative creative space. Uh, at any rate, it was a fascinating conversation with Ned. Uh, he put together a, uh, a kind of sampler pack of music for me. It's three different pieces, uh, excerpts, of all of them. Ned has a great YouTube channel, by the way. We talked a bit about that too, the importance now of having video. Uh, So check that out. But in the meantime, here are three or excerpts of three pieces by Ned McGowan. We're going to hear Earthly Chants, Movement 1, The Singing Wall. That'll go right into Tools, Movement 8, Telescopic Ladder, and then Woodburn.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Those high dissonances are really something at the end of that piece, huh? <laughs> I love the resolution, too. It's wonderful music by Ned McGowan. The piece is called Woodburn, and it was the third in a three-movement sampler pack of Ned's music. Prior to that, we heard a piece called Tools, the eighth movement, Telescopic Ladder. And before that, Earthly Chants, a fantastic piece. We heard the first movement, The Singing Wall. Ned has told me that he's very interested in Carnatic music and has had the chance to study it. I think we're really hearing those influences, especially in that piece, The Singing Wall. Uh, He's also said that rhythm is really at the forefront of what he does. And, well, I think we can hear that in all of the pieces that we heard there. Again, Ned has a great YouTube channel, so check that out. Uh, He's an American composer originally from California, living now in Holland. My theme is expats on the show today. Let's turn from Holland to Japan, and composer Colleen Schmuckall, who grew up in the Chicago area, and went to Japan on a foreign exchange while she was in college. uh, They didn't even have, I think, a foreign exchange program there. They were very surprised (laughs) that that's where she wanted to go. So she had to kind of figure it out and piece it together herself. Uh, I think they were thinking she'd go someplace that a a Western music student would normally go, like Austria, Germany, France, someplace like that. But she had a real fascination with Japanese instruments and Japanese culture and uh, writes music that's very much inspired by Japanese traditional music, which as you may suspect is not the same as Western music?
5: Western music always has this big push. We have to do something new. We have to do something new. You know, completely original new. If it's not original, it's not good. Where traditionally in Japan, new is bad. Not because new is actually bad, but because nobody understands it. No one's heard it before. So how can you communicate with people if you're using melodies or patterns they don't understand? So what's actually interesting is to use already known patterns that you're accepted, but doing it in a different way and being creative with that. So you're using all of the same mediums, the same theory, the same, you know, melodies, the same texts, but we're going to do it in a different way. And that's where the surprise element comes in. And so you get a lot of repeats of the same pieces, but they're dramatically different. Um, but to do that, you need this kind of collaborative, like, okay, in drumming, usually when it's a, a really slow, tense piece, we use this pattern. So sh- should we use this pattern or should we use that? You know, and you kind of talk through all of that and quickly put it together and you have all these pieces, uh, which is why I think it's been hard for Japan to find the composer traditionally before the Meiji period because it really is just the players. But I think they are the composers. Give them the, resp- you know, there's this weird, I think it's, it's pressure from the West because of the West performers are so looked down on like oh the performers are dumb they don't you know right because it's the composer it's the critic then it's the players themselves they're the ones who really don't know anything about music and so because they follow that model they don't have respect for all these traditional players that did come up with the theory that did come up with the compositions that did you know really create the instruments that we have today and the modern music that we have today so what I was originally approached to ask I was approached by the player to write them a shamisen concerto and you know up to that point there hasn't been that many shamisen concertos especially not in Japan you know in comparison to other traditional instruments like koto or shakuhachi um, shamisen was incredibly low and so when I was approached I went through all the shamisen concertos and one of the things I noticed you know looking at the history and what pieces had been quote-unquote most successful is they really relied on a very western soundscape, um, meaning it's a lot of harmony, it's a lot of long blowing flutes, it's you know, just a lot of you know, harmony and then Shamisen is in the middle of it just playing um, rhythms, really complicated rhythmic stuff and kind of abstract notes. What Shamisen's is really good at doing it really makes sound, it, it always made it sound like that's all Shamisen can do is just kind of play and do rhythms and you know that kind of stuff and it's like but where's the musical side of Shamisen? Where's the other stuff of Shamisen? So I based my model not on this western model, I based it more on a kabuki model because Shamisen is the soloist of kabuki. They're the leader, they're the ones you know deciding you know they're they're basically leading the ensemble quietly and you know creating all the sound effects and the atmosphere and everyone else is kind of just piling in on top of that. And so I thought well this is already naturally you know highlights the shamisen um, and it's a really fun soundscape and um, the theme of the piece uh, is Heike Monogatari or the Tale of Heike, which is a uh, traditional war epic. So this is written after Genji Monogatari, the Tale of Genji. Yeah, Genji um, I know. Right, so this is kind of after it, though uh, Genji's family line is actually a part of this war epic. So it's the big battle between two families trying to take control over the emperor, you know, the Taira being the main characters, the Miyamoto being the ones going against them. And the whole theme of Heike Monogatari, or the tale of Heikei, is that the mighty will rise up, but no matter how far or how big they get, eventually they will crumble, they will fall. And so, you know, and, and it's the very beginning, it's a beautiful poem at the very beginning of the um, story where they talk about, you know, the bell at Gion Temple is ringing. It's like a, a dream in the springtime, you know, dust upon the wind. No matter how mighty you get, it will eventually just disappear. Everything is fleeting. Um, and that's the whole, you know, the story of the family gets stronger and stronger. They take control. And then inevitably the epic ending of the story is uh, the battle at it's the Dan no Ura, it's the battle at Shimonoseki, where the, the families pushed onto ships in the Shimonoseki Strait, and they have nowhere to escape to anymore, they have nothing to do, and so they all commit suicide in the water and die. And so that's where you get the creepy crabs, they have like faces on their backs, Have you ever heard of that folklore, because they say it's the it's the faces of the Taira family, because they all died in that strait.
0: Just part of my conversation with composer Colleen Schmuckall, a fascinating conversation that ranged all over the place. So we were talking, of course, about music, about Japanese instruments, Japanese musical traditions, as you heard her talking about uh, versus Western, but also about just being a Westerner in Japanese culture. It's, it's impossible to completely fit in. And and, and Colleen is uh, pretty fluent in Japanese. She even did her master's thesis uh, in Japanese, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. It's one thing to speak a language, it's quite another to write effectively in that language, especially when that language is as complex as uh, Japanese. And yet she'll always be a gaijin, an outsider, something that she knows. And and, uh, well, she even said sometimes that there is an advantage even in being an outsider. I wish we could play the whole conversation, but of course We love music on relevant tones, so let's dive in to the Shamisen Concerto. We're gonna hear an excerpt now of When the Waves Crash by Colleen Schmuckal. the third and final movement of colleen schmuckall's shamisen concerto it's called when the waves crash uh, about this famous story the the Haki clan getting their comeuppance i love those final two notes in the shamisen i kind of wonder what that uh, what that represents the drum i think is obvious sort of the, the drum beat of of fate of destiny even the mighty Uh, can come to a bad end. In fact, uh, they generally do one way or another, right? Even if you just have an incompetent air. (laughs) Um, I think we know something about that in this country. At any rate, uh, wonderful music by Colleen Schmuckel. It's a three-movement piece. I I find it to be absolutely a fascinating work. I want to come back at some point and play more of Colleen's music. In fact, I want to do the same for all of the composers on the program today. So many fascinating conversations came out of uh, this program. So I have the seeds for lots of future relevant tones material. Uh, Great. So let's move on to Gloria Coates, my next guest. Uh, Speaking of which, Gloria is one of the most prolific symphonists alive. She's written 15 symphonies. So as I was chatting with her on Skype, I was thinking, I really need to do a deep dive into Gloria's music. Uh, So we're kind of running out of time here. So for now, I'm going to give you a sneak preview of our conversation, which I will come back to uh, a couple of episodes from now. And I'm going to feature an excerpt of a wonderful string quartet she wrote called Among the Asteroids.
6: When I was very little, I would say like three or four, I had one of those toy pianos as a present. And I was sort of playing around and my mother said, oh, I wrote something. And she played something that was sort of like, a little bit like chopsticks theme, but I didn't know it then. So I assumed she was just writing that. So I would kind of make my own little melodies early. And then I started piano lessons with a neighbor actually. And she was rather strict of what she was teaching. And I would listen to the radio to different things that I liked. And also at school, we had a wonderful music program. In kindergarten, we already had Grieg. That I had my own preferences musically. And I used to go to the, we had a, a Woolworths, I think it was Woolworths Dime Store in my hometown. And they had, in the back, they had a, a little counter with sheet music. And I used to go there and so I had, I would get my music myself, five cents, 10 cents it would cost. And I started playing my own music and improvising, but not for my teacher, I did it for myself. And at that time I was also interested in overtones because I would put the pedal on, I would listen to overtones all the time. This is a little, is it maybe eight, nine, ten years old. So my whole development started very early. My music is from when I was a child. It comes from inside of me. And whatever I need to express, whatever I'm expressing, is from somewhere inside of me. So I have to create forms, I create notation, because of the sounds I hear. I can hear overtones and undertones. In fact, in college, I remember in an acoustics class, I mentioned that I could hear undertones, an octave and then a fifth. Now, and the teachers, said, it's impossible. It's, it must just be that you're hearing a reflection of the overtones. And I said, no, I hear them. I went home. Yes, I hear them. I went back. Well, about two months later, if that's a coincidence, in the paper, they said in Russia they had done research and they found there were the undertones, just like I had heard. So that I heard I don't know now in my age if I hear that well. But I heard very, very keenly overtones and undertones.
0: A tiny bit of my conversation with composer Gloria Coates, I made sure to include this about overtones and undertones uh, because it's so important to her music. She has this incredible ear uh, for what we think of as microtonal, the, the sounds in between the 12 notes on the piano. Uh, It's absolutely an incredible sound world that, in my opinion, doesn't sound like any other composer. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of a taste of it, and then I hope you'll tune in uh, for a future Relevant Tones episode, probably two to three episodes from now, in which I'll devote the entire episode to the music of Gloria Coates, especially her wonderful symphonies. But for now, uh, we're going to go out with this wonderful piece, Among the Asteroids. Here is the Kreutzer Quartet. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs)